if you look at those two athletes, one was a 1A, one was a 1B, and the 1A responded amazingly well to heavy partials. So we the accentuation method, we look at the joint angles needed when sprinting and pushing a sleigh, and we start the squat from that angle and we lift up, sometimes slowly for a grind, but it was super heavy. For the 1A, it worked really well. Very good transfer to performance. For the 1B, it actually made him sprint slower. What we needed to do was squatting with a stretch reflex. So even if it was half squats, because at the end, I, at the end of the training program, the training event, I, I like to emphasize half squats over full squats because it's more specific. Uh, even doing a half squat, we use a stretch reflex. And people think the stretch reflex in an exercise is only once you reach the bottom position or when the target or the prime movers are fully stretched. That is not the case. You can have a, a stretch reflex at any angle in a movement. That was Coach Christian Thibodeau, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, Simply Faster. There are a lot of sports technology companies out there, but Simply Faster is the only website you can go to that features an online store that covers the bandwidth of training technology, from force plates to timing systems to muscle stimulators and more. Some products of Simply Faster that I use and love include things like the Freelap Timing System in KBox or coaches' favorites such as GymAware. Recently, Simply Faster has added two units that as a coach, you should definitely take a look at. The first is the Muscle Lab Contact Grid, which is an extremely affordable and portable step-by-step, literally, system to collect data on jumps, bounds, sprints, agility, hurdle hops, and really as much as your creative mind can imagine. In what used to take a whole runway worth of data collecting strips, the Contact Grid does it all with only two small strips that together cover up to 40 meters of sprinting. Ground contact time, step rates, rhythms, and beyond are at your fingertips with this device. Another new unit, the VO2 Master, is an ultra-portable gas exchange analyzer. Don't guess on energy system development when you can get direct insight into VO2 capabilities in relation to specific sports skills, rather than being hooked up to tubes on a treadmill or worse yet, a cycle ergometer to get a VO2 max. Think of the VO2 Master as your own gas exchange lab without the tubes and wires. Deepen your analysis in the specific conditioning preparation of your athletes with the VO2 Master today. These products and incredible customer service make Simply Faster your go-to for your sports technology needs. I'm happy to have partnered with them in sponsoring this podcast. Their support has been tremendous, so check them out today at simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Welcome back to another episode. We have on the show for his fifth appearance, Christian Thibodeau. I'm super excited for this show. Well, I'm excited for every show with Christian because he's just an absolute wealth of knowledge And every show we've done so far is just like this dense library that I've really dug into when when going back through and editing it and doing show notes and and the concepts that Christian brings forward are always something that I'm I'm always marinating on. I'm always thinking of, especially just just the last one just a few months ago, we did the one on adrenaline and muscle tone and and using adrenaline response and what an athlete's resting muscle tone is to determine how often they can train. I mean, how awesome is that? Christian is the author of several books, has presented in tons of countries, has been training athletes for almost two decades, 
and is a guy who, if you're into strength training, then you've probably heard Christian on some level, on in some way, maybe you've read his books, you've been through his articles on T Nation, you've caught him on this podcast. Christian is an absolute wealth of knowledge, and I'm excited to have him back. The topic we're going to chat about on this show was actually one that I had meant to get to on the last show we did, but it's just, it's, as so happens, there's always so much information that Christian has, we just didn't have time for it. So we, we the last show was really catered to the adrenaline element and overtraining and muscle tone. And I wanted to get to omni reps or multiple rep types and contraction types, but we decided we were going to save it for another show. And so we were able to record this one shortly thereafter. And so this show gets into, you're probably familiar if you're listening to this with different rep or contraction emphasis in the weight room, emphasizing the eccentric part of a lift, emphasizing the isometric part, emphasizing the concentric part, scaling these, these muscle phases, these phases of weightlifting in a way that makes it more suitable for your ultimate strength gains, but also for athleticism. Because as we know that there's multiple muscle phases and multiple ways the muscles work in sport. I mean, this is, a again, a huge library, this show, on all elements of muscle phase, muscle contraction. And the thing that really resonates with this is it really distinguishes using the three phases of contraction in training for athletes in sport and speed and power athletes versus someone who just wants to get bigger and stronger. The second uh, layer that Christian takes this to is the phases of muscle contraction as they relate to different types of athletes, different types of neurotypes specifically. And now, if you haven't caught episode 77, which was Christian's first appearance on the show, I would truly recommend that. It is a huge primer on the different types and the different training responses. But if you haven't listened to it or aren't familiar with the system, just to uh, a quick overview of just the two types that we really get into on this show, and you heard it in the teaser, are the 1A and the 1B. I like to think of Ben Johnson and Carl Lewis as sprinters, if you're familiar with those two. Ben Johnson being the intense ball of muscle type sprinter who squatted 600 pounds or half squatted, whatever the depth was, 600 pounds and ran 979 in the 100. And then Carl Lewis being more the kangaroo elastic who didn't really like weightlifting and was a long jumper. So two athletes with two different responses, you can think of the 1A as needing to be as strong as possible to be as explosive as possible, leveraging muscle intensity, and the 1B needing to be as explosive as possible to be strong. And so these athletes have a different training response based off of who they are. And so there's a, it goes a lot deeper than that, but I did want to touch on that part of the, the overview before we got too far into the show, just in case you uh, hadn't heard that and I didn't want anyone to get lost. Anyways, Christian is going to get into so many things on muscle contraction and his OmniRep system, and I'm really excited to get this show to you guys. It's an hour and a half of just, again, a library of training knowledge. So let's get to it, episode 221 with Christian Thibodeau. So would you say the next book you're going to write is going to be like golf swing training for like physique professionals or people with a lot of muscle mass or how, how would that, how would that probably not. I mean, the market for that is pretty darn small. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't, wouldn't be worth the time. Wouldn't be worth the time. Actually, uh, I'm in the middle of a project with human kinetics and it's supposed to be about my, my omnicontraction training system. So, so like eccentric, isometric, concentric and how to mix them up. Right now, it's time-consuming just because of the way they work when it comes to publishing a book. I'm used to like working with a friend of mine who has his own little like publishing house. So he basically, I just write the book from start to finish in, in almost one shot. 
then I send it to him. They have it revised for grammar and stuff like that. And they just run it. But with big publishing houses, and it's not limited to human kinetics, every big publishing house is like that. I, I submit the project to my editor who submitted to his boss. Then they send me a recommendation. We don't like this. We don't think so. I'd have to redo it. Then I get into a call. Then we have to talk about you don't use the same terminology as the NSCA does that kind of confuse our readers and that. So it's been like four months and I haven't even started writing working on a book yet. So I'm not used to that way of functioning, to be honest. So it, I might end up just having it published even by, by Dragon Door, maybe, or just published by my, uh, my old editor. Yeah, the the whole thing. I mean, I'm on my fourth book now, and I, I've actually just done them all myself, which has been yeah. way too much time, an insane amount of time. And the whole, uh, okay. just write it in one shot and send it, and then they'll put it together for you. Sounds amazing. So. Maybe I need to how do you get on that. That uh, that sounds like it's a little bit easier. Well, easy there right are right. benefits. Like for, for example, if you publish with human kinetics, just from a reputation standpoint, that's huge. Also allows you to more easily get your work available in colleges and universities. And, but it's not much money because they don't send you a large proportion of the gains. So you're going to make more money if you self-publish or if you go with a smaller house. But from a recognition standpoint and the, the whole people they can actually reach, it's much lower. So it's, it's always been a dream of mine to publish with human kinetics eventually. So. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I was going to say um, that um, golf golf training for bodybuilders, probably regardless of human kinetics or self-published or anyone, is probably not going to not going not gonna to make it in the universities. Not enough of a sample size there to really break through. Well. I would actually, if I were to write such a book, I would I would write it with, with uh, Jason Zubak. Uh, Jason, we've been we've been talking for a while. For those who don't know, Jason uh, is a five-time world long drive champion. Yeah, I've seen. I've actually seen him on, on TV and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When I was a kid playing golf, he was actually my idol. I mean, everybody loved Fred Couples or Ernie Els. I, I love Jason Zubak because. I read an article about him in Muscle and Fitness, and the dude looked jacked. He could snatch 140 kilos. He could clean and jerk 170 kilos, back squatted 600 pounds, that lifted 700. And he was 5'9", 230, which is what was pretty close where I was. And he was a a college linebacker, and I was a college linebacker. So I, I really related to this guy. Of course, I was nowhere near his level. In either strength or golf at the time. Strength wise, I eventually quit, but that golf. And it's funny because his wife is now competing in, in, uh, in fitness and Paul Carter is training her. And Paul, of course, is a good friend of mine and we wrote a book together. So that's how I actually Jason contacted me. So I said, dude, I, I, I freaking love your stuff, man. I mean, I loved you when I was a kid. And so, so we started talking and exchanging ideas, but I, I don't have, in my opinion, the credential to write a book on, on golf training because I'll be, I'm playing golf. I'm passionate about it. I'm passionate about training. I've not been able to blend those two together. I mean, I, I would not feel comfortable training a golfer right now. I'm still like playing around with them. Now, I've been training like linear athletes for such a long time that I'm not yet where I need to be to train a rotational athlete efficiently. I'm I'm working around with some methods, but it, it, it's hard. I, I have a lot of respect for strength coaches working with rotational athletes. It's it's a very big challenge. 
Yeah, that definitely takes a lot of like humility to say too, you know, like I'm just not there yet. I don't have enough. This yeah, I might not even get there, you know, because it, it, when, you, when you work like 20 years to develop a certain expertise, a skill set with certain type of athletes, then you, you, you basically spend your whole time like building your knowledge base toward that goal. And not only that, but you also develop a, 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 like a paradigm, a point of view that applies to that. And personally, every time I, I venture outside of that, I'm lost because my, my, I'm using my frame of reference and it's not the same anymore. So I would probably need to be at the same level of knowledge or capacity as a coach for rotational athletes as I am with football players or powerlifters or Olympic weightlifters. It would probably take me like five years of full-time working with athletes and experimenting and stuff like that. And I probably don't have the time to do that anymore. Yeah, that's what I'm I'm realizing. Like you there's only so much time in one lifetime to be really good at a particular amount of things. It was interesting too, you had mentioned like just training with mace bells. It's interesting to see this I guess you could call it evolution, but people who do a lot of just traditional weightlifting and then kinda get mm-hmm. into more of the, you know, the just more yeah. the I guess you call it artful or or just different kind of movements. How long has that kind of been on your radar and in, in t- doing that kind of thing? Uh, actually, I, I, I've always been somewhat attracted with alternative forms of training. I remember like almost 10 years ago, eight years ago, I, I did six months stint where I essentially trained only on gymnastic rigs or bodyweight training. I've always been attracted to that. The club bells, I've played around with them probably eight, eight years ago, around the same time I was working with rings because a client of mine who was also a, a pretty knowledgeable coach himself was one of the main experts in clubhouse. So I, 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 I played around with him a bit, never really like wanted to train with him. I, I started experimenting with this year and I, I like it. And you're right, like many like beat up old either strength coaches or bodybuilders in the twilight of their career, start being attracted to these alternative forms of training. And I can see several reasons for that. The main reason, I believe, is that, well, you no longer can achieve your the same peak physique or the same peak strength you had when you were younger. I mean, at one point, I was like 230 and super lean. I was 252 and lean-ish, bench 445, squat over 600. I snatched 315. There's no way in hell I can get anywhere close to these numbers or physical development. And it's not for lack of trying. Okay, Two years ago, I was trying to gain the size back. I just can't. I can get muscular. I can get lean. But not to the point where I'm the same visual version that I was. I, I, I look good, but people would still ask me, oh, you used to be Christian Thibodeau, right? So... I can understand why someone who goes through that would want to look for methods and will still challenge them, but you don't have any frame of reference. So you can, uh, even if I try really hard, I'm still only 80% of what I was. On top of that, you can trick yourself into thinking, well, you know what? I don't really want to be super strong or super muscular anymore. I just want to be like crazy mobile, crazy athletic. So it makes you feel better about yourself. And I, at one point, that's where that's what it's all about. Furthermore, after years of like lifting heavy weights and explosive work, or, or doing lots of hypertrophy work, your joints are beat up. You, know, you have injuries, you have mobility issues, and you find that you know what—just wake up and get out of bed in the morning is super hard. 
So you want to improve that mobility. You want to improve your conditioning. You want to feel better physically. You want to be able to play with your kid when he's just running around for hours and hours and hours. So your priorities changes. You can you cannot achieve what you once achieved. So to me, that's a mix of the reasons why people will switch from more traditional hypertrophy training, strength training to those alternative methods. Yeah, that really highlights, uh, like you had said, I think you've talked about this on past shows, like the, the 2A neurotype, just always switching and having that different muse too. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. It, it's got to make it like that kind of that lifelong thing really fun and enjoyable. Like, all right, we're going to go on. Maybe if you ever do the long drive, if you ever get into long driving, I, I definitely would love to see a video. Maybe uh, Jason will take you. I wouldn't get into long drive because it's funny. People assume that I'm a long hitter. I'm not a long hitter. I mean, I'm not a short hitter. I'm average. Yeah. My, my average drive would be 275, 285. My, my seven iron is 180, 175. So that's pretty good. But when you, know, you look at my swing speed with a driver would be around 115 miles an hour, 112 miles an hour, which is average for a player. But if you look at those long drive guys, they are reaching swing speeds of 150 miles an hour. It's, it's crazy. They're going to be driving like 400 in the air. That just a, a different volume is. And, and I'm not tall enough anyway. You need to be uh, like long lever, like short arms. Making yeah. the most of what I have. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you got to have that that big arc, the arc, the size of the arc. I'm sure yeah. huge, huge portion. Exactly. So you mentioned you mentioned uh, omni reps before, and that's that's something I really was excited to talk with you about today. Yeah. And so the first question on the line of just different rep types, I know a lot of people listening to this are hugely familiar with the eccentric, isometric, concentric, and all that. And mm-hmm. the first question I have is, would you train, um, in terms of different types of reps, would you train an athlete differently than if just someone wanted to just gain muscle? Are you looking at them differently, or does it not really matter in terms of mixing things absolutely, up? Absolutely, yes. I, I didn't used to, but recently I found that it actually worked. Training with athletes is different than, than training people who just want to look better. I mean, the, 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 the foundations are still the same. I'm still going to be training the three types of contraction. I'm still going to be focusing on mostly big compound movements. But there are some differences. For example, with athletes, we have three whole body workouts per week. So we have four lifts per workout normally as to cover uh, press, pull, inch, squat. And one day we work on eccentric. Doesn't mean we only do the eccentric. It means that phase of the movement is emphasized, either by going slowly during the eccentric or using an overload during the eccentric phase and no overload during the concentric by using weight releasers, for example, or manual, uh, manual resistance. Then we have a day where we focus on isometrics. Again, it doesn't mean we do pure isometrics. Sometimes we do pure isometrics, but most of the time we do statodynamic contractions which means we include pauses at various positions of the rep. Could be before the set, could be during every rep, could be at the, so just to work on the capacity to maintain a certain position and contract the muscle without moving. And then on the third day, we focus on concentric. Doesn't mean we only do the concentric. It means normally we do normal reps where we focus on overloading the concentric. But with the average people just wanting to look better, I moved more toward a body part split, antagonistic split. So, for example, chest and biceps one day. Then I'm going to work on quads and hamstrings the other day. It's going to be delts and rear delts and traps. And then we're going to be doing back 
and triceps. So everything gets hit indirectly at least twice a week, except legs. But on back, we do deadlifts, so we still work the lower body. So everything gets stimulated twice a week, which is the minimum to get maximum results, in my opinion. The main difference is that with average people just want to get in muscle, we train all three types of contractions on the same workout. So, for example, uh, uh, let's take a chest and biceps workout. We're going to have six exercises instead of the four we use with athletes. Again, the reason is that athletes do other stuff than lifting. You're going to be sprinting and be conditioning work when you practice your sport. You need to keep some of those uh, neurological resources available. You don't want to burn out your adrenergic receptors. People just want to gain muscle. They don't have that limitation mm -hmm. normally. So we have six exercises, and they are done in pairs. So A1, A2, B1, B1, B2, C1, C2. And every pair works a different type of contraction. For example, the A1, A2 pair could emphasize the eccentric. So A1 would be a chest exercise. A2 would be a biceps exercise. A B1, chest, B2, biceps, and so on and so forth. So the A series would be eccentric. The B series would be isometric. The C series would be mm -hmm. concentric. And it is periodized in a way that you will focus on a different contraction early on in your training in different phases. In the first training block, we're going to emphasize isometric first. So in the A series is your big lift. So you emphasize on isometric. Second will be emphasizing eccentric. Third will be the concentric. So you only do concentric with the minor stuff. Second block, we start with concentric then we move we, we do the isometric then we do the eccentric and block number three we start with eccentric then we do concentric then we do isometric and then oftentimes we will have a four block or we start with a concentric but for maximum strength so so it, it's still the same mentality of training all three types of contraction but now it's in the same workout because you don't have those whole body workout you can devote only one type of contraction so that's the main difference of course the first pair, a series, will be kind of similar to what I would do with athletes. So it's big compound movement normally. Of course, with biceps, uh, well, it's going to be a close grip chin-up, for example. So it's still big basic movement. And, but the rest, the B series, the C series would be, the B series is intermediate assistance work. So it could be multi-joint or, or multi-muscle exercises but that are low stress on the body. Uh, could be on a machine, could be on a pulley station, whatever. And the C-series is purely isolation work, which actually does not increase the whole stress of the workout that much. Whereas with athletes, if I need to add isolation work, it would normally be on the fourth workout that I call the gap workout. The gap workout is anything that an athlete needs to focus on and that is not being trained on the three main workouts. So that's actually a very low stress workout. It could actually be even uh, seen as a recovery day. So if an athlete needs more size, we might do hypertrophy work there using very low stress exercises. With athletes, I believe that trying to achieve hypertrophy with high stress exercises like big compound lift is stupid. It's not a good way to invest your resources. You already have all that neurological work when you simply want to add tissue to your frame, don't add more neurological stress, right? I mean, you see, you're already squatting. You already don't use your squat, your, your 
hip hinge, your snatch, your clean, your bench press to build size with athletes. You use that to increase strength and power. Sure, at the beginning of a cycle, you might use more accumulation method, but it's not to build muscle, it's to get the joints, tendons, and technique ready for loading heavy on those movements. The side effect is you might stimulate growth, but it's just that it's a side effect. If you need specific hypertrophy for an athlete, use low-stress exercises. Use machine work. Well, it won't be functional, dude. Okay, you're squatting three days a week. You're doing a Romanian deadlift or an Olympic lift three days a week. And you do hypertrophy work on a leg curl, a reverse cyper, and a leg press. Do you really think you won't get functional gains? Because the muscle you will gain from the machine work, you will learn to use it by doing neurological work on those same movements and the same muscles anyway when you're squatting and deadlifting. You don't have to make every single exercise functional in the training of an athlete. You must ask yourself, what am I trying to achieve with that movement? If, it, if the answer is simply, I need to add muscle tissue or improve my muscle connection with a certain muscle or fix an imbalance, you don't need to use functional, quote unquote, method, functional, quote unquote, exercises. You can simply use isolated movement, machine exercise, fully exercise. Actually, these are probably better because you can focus on the muscle better. If you have an imbalance and you're using big compound movements to fix an imbalance, you're still going to be using your strongest muscle to overcome the load. So your weakest muscle, those you want to fix, well, they're not being stimulated because you're compensating with your stronger muscles. So when you want to fix a weakness, it's on a gap workout, low stress exercises. We don't go below six reps per set. Uh, normally, we don't go to failure. It's just more about like muscle contraction practice. With an athlete, that's what we do. Yeah, I love that. And I like, um, it, it reminds me a little bit of Mac when I was in high school. These are some of the weird things I remember, probably because it was athletic related, but it was our anatomy and physiology class. We were watching um, a documentary on Mike Powell, who's the world record holder in long jump. And it was showing him training and he's doing like leg extensions and leg curl machine. You know, this is training in the 80s or whatever, but it's like, okay, if this guy's got the world record, clearly just doing an isolation based work was not holding him back, you know? And, um, I did a recent podcast on kind of like individualization for, for sprint athletes. And it was like a concentric type, elastic type and a metabolic type and the elastic type, which I think you could liken to a one B Ross was saying that doing like really heavy lifting that they might not respond that well to that. But if you're going to do just do a lot like more auxiliary work, they might respond to more general work that doesn't really tax their nervous system. And then they get the power out of being fast and explosive plyometric and those types of things. And so that was really reminding me of that. Absolutely. Yeah. But uh, again, it's, it's a matter of like the type of person you're working with, what you're trying to achieve with an exercise. Uh, and I think that people like paint themselves in a corner by being such a strong advocate for something or a, a staunch offender. You, you, you are against something and you are very vocal about it's stupid to train on leg extensions. Well, you know what? You might actually find one day and the leg extension is actually the exercise you need to fix a specific problem an athlete has. If someone is super posterior chain dominant and he has very weak quads, there are very few exercises that you can use that will fix that problem because you, you will always use this posterior chain. So let's say you have a sprinter. They have, let's say, very long legs for their height. They have short tibia. 
they are extremely posterior chain dominant. Any form of squatting right from the start, and I'm talking about split squatting also, so regular squatting, lunges, split squats, Bulgarian split squat, it will all be posterior chain dominant. I'm not saying the quads don't work, but the posterior chain will get a lot more stimulus. So maybe what you need to fix that problem is either leg extension. It could be walking backwards with a sled. So every loaded sled, probably around 50%, 75% of your body weight, <clears throat> walking backwards while staying low for around 45 to 60 seconds or a stationary bike with very high resistance, the highest resistance you can, you can use without using choppy techniques. So think, still staying smooth, but it's too heavy for you to go fast. Again, for 45 to 60 seconds, these will be the three best ways to develop the quadriceps in such an athlete. So uh, even the most stupid exercise might actually one day be the one tool you need to use to fix an issue. So you, you should never paint yourself in a corner and become against, completely against any form of training that you can find. Yeah, that's that's a fantastic point. And I, I something I've realized more and more over the years. And yeah, you think that long that long femured athlete who just everything's gonna turn into a hip hinge. You gotta do you gotta get outside yeah. the box a little bit. Absolutely. Back to what you were saying before. This is so interesting to me. And well, first off, so you were saying if it's a non-athlete, basically like we can pack in all the phases of muscle contraction in one one workout, lots of methods. Yeah. But an athlete, you're going to spread it throughout the week, like you're going to, you know, Monday, right. Monday. And so my question for you is, I know like a big a training program that's had a really powerful influence on me is triphasic training with Cal Dietz, where they'll, you know, using all the methods, but it'll be two weeks of eccentric, two weeks of isometric, two weeks of concentric, where your work runs kind of all in serial, if you will. What's your thoughts on running, you know, like at one, like a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, going to do a different versus changing it up every two weeks? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, first, I, I want to mention that I was actually writing about using all three types of contraction in my second book that was published 18 years ago. So it's not like I, I piggyback on triphasic training. Some people actually, oh, it's just triphasic training. Dude, I was uh, using that form of training 22 years ago with athletes. Okay. Well, that having been said, Carl is doing great, great things. I really love his methods. Many methods I actually learned from him, okay? And his system is obviously effective. It's better, in my opinion, than pretty much every normal strength training program you see. Those, It will always be better to train all three types of contraction than not putting emphasis on eccentric and isometric like you see in most training programs. In that regard, Dietz and Jay Schroeder are, in my opinion, amazing coaches, okay? We don't do things the same way because personally, I see some drawbacks, some limitations in rotating contraction types in two weeks phases or even in three or even four week phases. The first reason, thing is if you don't train a certain motor skill, you're going to be losing it. So if you're training a skill for four weeks, let's say I said isometrics, then you don't train it for another eight weeks because you have four weeks of concentric, four weeks of eccentric, for example. And when, once you go back to isometric, your capacity to perform an isometric action will be down by certain percentage, even if you got overall stronger. It will take you about two weeks to build back up to where you were. Because fast neural adaptations are gained in two weeks, 
but they are also lost in two weeks. So, and again, if you do two weeks phases, the most of the gains you will get from a certain type of training will be from those quick neurological adaptations, which are also rapidly lost. So you would need, in my opinion, to stay longer than two weeks or even four weeks with a certain type of contraction to get maximum results from a structural standpoint, from a, a long-term strength building effect, in my opinion. The other thing is that when you look at every type of contraction, eccentric, isometric, concentric, you can actually divide them all into three broad categories. The first category would be uh, duration dominant, or, or what we would call uh, hypertrophy, so it's lower force production, longer duration. Then you would have the higher load, so you have the, the intensity dominant, so it would be shorter sets, much heavier weights, or much higher force production. Then you would have an explosive category, which would be moderate load, maximum speed. So all three, eccentric, isometric, concentric, have a duration phase, they have uh, an intensity phase and they have an explosion phase. Okay, so you need to train all three. If you want to be explosive, you first need to be strong. And if you want to be strong, you need to prepare the body to be able to handle the heavy loads. So if I'm going to be doing or, uh, eccentric overloads, for example, eccentric overloads with weight releasers using 20% more during the eccentric, that will increase my strength rapidly. However, if I'm not physically prepared to do that, <coughs> I'm going to get injured. That's where the slow eccentrics come into play, using a moderate load, maybe more reps, more time under tension, really focusing on controlling that load during the eccentric. Several benefits. A slow eccentrics has been shown to increase activation of the motor cortex, which facilitates motor learning and also improving coordination between the involved muscle. It will also build tendon strength. So basically, me, when I do slow eccentric, I see that as joint and muscle preparation to be able to uh, handle the overload, eccentric overload. And once you've done the eccentric overload, you're now prepared to do over speed eccentric absorption drills. Absorption drills like barbell drop and catch, depth jumps or, or depth landing, stuff like that. Very powerful methods. Everybody needs to, every athlete needs to be able to absorb extra force. However, if you train that before you have built the capacity to handle high forces during a controlled eccentric action, you risk injury. And if you have not built a lot of slow, quote unquote, eccentric force before moving on to fast explosive force, your gains will be, will be lower. So that's why personally, I believe in periodizing all three types of contraction. So our first training block, for example, four weeks, six weeks, depending on the athlete, is more of a joint muscle preparation. It's called an accumulation phase where we do higher volume, not, not necessarily more sets or more exercises, but more duration, more reps. So the, the, the type of work we're focusing on is more duration dominant than intensity dominant. And what it does is it improves mechanics, it improves technique, it increases uh, stability because isometrics, when it's done with like pauses during an exercise, it increases the activation of a synergist and, and antagonist muscle, increasing active stability. You will strengthen the tendons. You will increase tendon resiliency. So all that stuff, and yes, you will build muscle, but all that stuff, the main goal is to prepare yourself to do the second phase safely. The second phase is trying to get strong. 
in all three types of contraction. So now we're moving into the heavy zone, the eye force zone. And you can't do that if you have not prepared your body and your mind for that, okay? And then after that phase, once you increase your strength by a certain percentage, you'll need to learn to apply that strength in all three types of contraction into explosive action. You need to be able to stop a load aggressively in without movement, so explosive isometrics. Then you need to be able to absorb force in explosive movement, and you need to be able to propel object or your body explosively. So explosive lifting, lots of depth jumping, absorption drill, catching and throwing, stuff like that. But you can't do that efficiently and safely if you've not prepared your body. And that's why I believe that you should train all three types of contraction because me, my end goal, my end goal is to be able to produce high force at high speeds in all three types of contraction, okay? And to be able to do that, I need to prepare each type of contraction to produce lots of force and then prepare each type of contraction to be able to maintain body integrity when I'm under every load. So I need to go through that periodization process if I want to maximize gains and minimize injury potential, okay? Now, if you're working with a high-level athlete who already has a decent level in all three types of muscle action, he's already been training eccentrically, isometrically, concentrically, he probably doesn't need to keep all three types of muscle action all the time, okay? Because he's been training them for a long time, it's an acquired skill. An acquired skill is much longer to lose. For example, I'm going to use an example. If you have an average person start doing power cleans for you, or squat, power cleans, squat, doesn't matter. Fairly complex, heavy lifting exercise. And they train for maybe a year, and they maybe they build up for a, to a 400-pound squat, okay? Have them stop training for five years and ask them to squat for a max again. I guarantee it will be nowhere near 400, okay? It might be at the same level as it was when they first started training, okay? Because their skill was not properly ingrained, okay? The skill of producing force in that complex movement. A friend of mine who was a member of the National Olympic lifting team, super strong dude at one point, he had a Canadian record in the clean and jerk in the 82 kilos class back then with 192 kilos clean and jerk. And I remember that he actually had been, he stopped training for about 10 years. So no training at all for 10 years. And I was coaching one day, Olympic weightlifters, and he came to the gym and I was training myself also. And I had 160 kilos on the bar doing cleans. And he asked, can I try it? I said, dude, you're 48. You haven't trained in 10 years. You're going to blow a quad or something. But you know what? With very little, like he didn't do any warm-up sets. He just did a general warm-up. He actually cleaned 160. It wasn't super pretty, but he cleaned it. After 10 years of zero training, that actually motivated him to start training again. The second week back to training, he was back squatting 550 for five reps. That's because he had acquired the capacity to produce force because he had been training it for 20, 25 years. So if someone has been training for a long time, eccentrically, isometrically, he won't lose it. So for example, let's look at one of the athletes I'm working with, member National Bob State Gab, snatches uh, 137. Uh, he, well, it's clean, it is bad because we have not focused on cleans. I've only used one Olympic lift normally with an athlete. 
it, for him, it was the snatch. But we, we started doing cleans this year. So he did uh, 165 kilo uh, and he squats 280. Anyway, right now, we are not trading all three types of contraction on their own day because we've been training those contraction, like eccentric, isometric, concentric, year-round for the past three years. It's acquired now. So I, I throw in eccentric. I throw in isometrics when I need it. Okay? But that's the thing. So if you take a young athlete who has never lifted weights or before or has little experience with eccentric and isometric and are going to be training a certain type of action only two weeks out of six or four weeks out of 12, in my opinion, that will not be as effective as if I keep training that capacity for the whole training cycle, going from duration to intensity or load, then to explosiveness. Again, that's the way my system is built. Logically, in my mind, it's superior. Doesn't mean it is. I mean, who knows? Maybe we're gonna find out that that it's actually the worst thing to do. But from a logical perspective, how the brain works, how the body works, to me, it makes more sense to do it this way. Yeah, I, I just like hearing all the different viewpoints. And I mean, the number of ways to put together a training program are probably more than the stars in the known universe. I mean, it's it's there's so many variables you could do. But I, I here's the thing, though. And sorry about interrupting. <laughs> okay, I shouldn't say this. But the, the, the truth of the matter is that when training high-level athletes, training likely has a lot less impact on performance as what most strength coaches want to believe. Mm -hmm. So if you have a semi-smart training approach and the athletes train in a dedicated way, you will get results and you will improve his performance. I believe that all those argument on semantics on micro details because in reality when you think about it okay let's say that Dietz and I we both train eccentric isometric concentric we do it differently but we still train it in the grand scheme of things the differences we have in our system are actually extremely extremely minute likely not to make a significant difference in the long-term development of an athlete we will both get there I promise you that. Yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I think I talk a lot of on, the, on this show about like the get it, you get to that point of hair splitting, right? And I think that we we don't want to, especially like keeping the broader view in mind, especially working with elite athletes. It's like look, like lifestyle, stress, nutrition, you know, technical, obviously everything that's technical in their sport and and everything that goes on with that. I think a lot of this too is just I like I do like the philosophy behind this stuff that you can extrapolate out to. And I, I was thinking about, well, even in, in the triphasic, I know in the, in the triphasic book, I, I'm like very, very confident that I think Wednesday was always like a concentric squat day, I think. So there was at least always that, like it wasn't like, and I, I'm the type of person that I just kind of make programs. I, I can never follow anyone's program, barely ever. I always have to kind of do my, and what my evolution of that ended up being actually in Grant Fowler, a trainer out of Texas, it's almost like we both found the same part of the training universe out in space. And our, cause it's funny when I talked to him about his training program, it was very similar. The basically would be like one day a week was a traditional concentric day, or a traditional normal lift. And the other day a week was a triphasic, but we'd run for two weeks and switch that over every two. So it's kind of, it kind of all, it does all kind of end up in a similar, I can end up in a similar mix, if you will. So I think that was still in there in the program is all I'm trying to say. And I, it, but I get what you were saying like that, because that does have to be. 
Now, you know, yeah, sometimes it's super, like super small detail. For example, let, for me, an eccentric emphasis on squat or on big lift starts with an eccentric of at least four seconds. So to me, if you do the eccentric in four seconds, it's considered a slow eccentric. A friend of mine, uh, Steph Cazot, we used to work together in St. Louis. He now has his own uh, certification program called Kilo Kilo Strength, which is awesome. He say, well, I don't emphasize the various types of contraction. True, but most of your squats are done with a 4-0-1-0 tempo. In my book, that is an eccentric emphasis. And I know that when he maxes out, he doesn't use that tempo. So see that just because someone thinks he doesn't emphasize eccentric doesn't mean he's not doing it, okay? So sometimes you need to look at what people are doing in a gym, not just what's on a piece of paper or in a book. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I, I agree. Some to, and that's what I was going to say is I, I need to intern. I need to intern with you and Cal at some point in my life. <laughs> That'd be awesome. But yeah, we, we, we need to do a po- podcast. Like you need to do a podcast with both of us. Yeah, I was actually just thinking that that would be really cool. Yeah, yeah that would be really cool. I was going to say, so I like what you were talking about. Um, well, one, I do, I do like the idea because it's, it's just something I've never done. I've just always kind of done things uh, uh, in the sense of like kind of two weeks at a time, but to try things where it's like, okay, you know, you you do this all. It'd be kind of similar to, I feel like if I'm a track sprinter and and I run the 100 meters, one day it might be an acceleration day. Another day I might be doing a flying 10 top end. The other day I might do a little speed endurance. You know, I'm doing, and I'm doing that every week. And then the every phase that changes so i think it's it's cool that you're getting the variety out of the the phase change it's like these modes are always here but then it will be novel when the you move from accumulation to intensification and to realization and and so on and so forth yeah and and by extension you can also say the same thing about the two weeks phase changes uh personally i I, and that's gonna sound really weird okay personally I would act, if we would just go with preferences here, I would prefer to train like Jesus is, is saying. I, me, for my own training, I would rather do two weeks of isometric, two weeks of eccentric, two weeks of concentric because I need variation, I need change. Okay. Even if I periodize over 12 weeks and I know that in four weeks, I'm going to use, still use eccentric, but it's going to be a different method. For me, it still has the same feel. So, and I'm all about staying motivated by using a, an approach that works for you, that, that gets you motivated, excited. But when I work with athletes, I, I look at it a lot more objectively. But if it worked for myself, for my enjoyment, I would prefer those two-week phases. In fact, I can't follow a program for longer than two weeks. So that's much <laughs> I think you and me have a lot in common there. I, uh, when you're talking about the undulation, so I do, I do like this because philosophically, if it's uh, whether this is strength for athletes or your track coach trying to help someone long jump as far, I think I love the stuff that's universal. And to me, when I was writing my book Speed Strength, I one study that will always stand out to me, and this fits with like the one B and one A neurotypes, is they had a study and it was like. All right, for eight weeks, we're going to train above 80% one or at max of squat or whatnot. And they tested a rate of force development on like a you know high pole ISO as fast as you can you know, develop force. Or I think that was their method. Uh, and then the other group, and then they said after eight weeks, we're going to do uh, under 80%, 60-80% move the bar fast, and then they'll test RFD. Mm-hmm. And they found about half of the group had the highest RFD 
when they were training heavy and half of the group had the highest RFD when they were training the the explosive. And so I'm like, okay, like I want to train. And as is with the neurotyping system, everything you do, like train as per the, what makes you tick rather than just expecting the periodization to do it. Like Charlie Francis talked about that all the time. Like you, cause if you do it the old school way, you just only have a, like a four week window in the year where you're actually getting what you need. And so my question is, is do you find, uh, how do you cater like an explosive, like a one B an explosive type or a two a an adaptable, uh, or maybe an intensity muscle driven person? Do you find that there's particular phases that might cater to those to particular athletes like a, like maybe a one B might like more reactive work and might not like uh, isometric or, or do you have any little anecdotes or comments on that? Uh, absolutely. And for example, uh, I had one uh, A athlete, also the national bobsleigh team, super strong, super fast. And I found that for him, four exercises in a workout was just too much. And furthermore, if the exercises changed from training to training, let's say, for example, we use a back squat on Monday, a front squat on Tuesday, and, and a back squat again on Friday, his performance would just crash. I mean, is is 30 meters time, which is which was our reference point, would always go way way down, more, slower uh, when we had variation, and if we had more than three exercises per workout. In fact, we found that for him to get the best strength gains and get the best sleep and actually gain the most muscle, he only could do two exercises per workout. Hmm. On the other end of the spectrum. I had uh, another guy, also a bobsleigh member. He needed six exercises per workout, and he needed to change those exercises pretty much every week to stay motivated. Now, as far as contraction type, again, if you look at those two athletes, one was a 1A, one was a 1B, and the 1A responded amazingly well to heavy partials. So we the accentuation method, we look at the joint angles needed when sprinting and pushing a sleigh, and we start the squat from that angle and we lift up, sometimes slowly for a grind, but it was super heavy. For the 1A, it worked really well, very good transfer to performance. For the 1B, it actually made him sprint slower. What we needed to do was squatting with a stretch reflex. So even if it was half squats, because at the end, I, at the end of the training program, the training plan, I, I like to emphasize half squats over full squats because it's more specific. Uh, even doing a half squat, we use a stretch reflex, and people think the stretch reflex in an exercise is only once you reach the bottom position or when the target or the prime movers are fully stretched. That is not the case. You can have a, a stretch reflex at any angle in a movement. The reason is the the way a muscle is built. People look at a muscle, let's say you open your bicep, and people think that a muscle fiber will run all the way from the origin to the insertion. So from one tendon to the other, the fibers just go like in that direction in one complete fiber. In reality, that's not how it's built. Each fiber is actually a composite of several microfibers connected as, as a chain together, and they are connected with micro tendons. So let's say you have that one fiber every, let's say, every few millimeter of you, like five or six millimeter, I don't know, it's just making a number up here, you're going to have a link of fiber 
then you're going to have a micro tendon, then another link of fiber and a micro tendon until that fiber runs all the way to other tendon. So it's one fiber that one fiber has many, many, many sections. And more importantly, those sections are connected with micro tendon. And these micro tendons also have a stretch reflex. So you can have a stretch reflex from any range of motion, provided that the stretch or the lengthening of that fiber occurs rapidly. And then you change direction, right? So you, you go eccentric super fast, then a rapid switch from eccentric to concentric and then explosive concentric, regardless of the depth or the range of the movement, you will get a stretch reflex. So if you do partial movement, you can still train a stretch reflex. And when I work with a 1B, we always try to get that stretch reflex regardless of the training method you've been using. So if I'm using an eccentric overload with a 1B, if I were to go slow all the way down the squat, he would squat literally 20, 30% less than he could on a regular rep, which would create an underload because I'm doing that eccentric, it's going to be too light because he will be limited by how much weight he can stand up with because he doesn't have the stretch reflex anymore. But what we do is the first three quarter of the range of motion, the eccentric range of motion, we go slow. But the last quarter, we go fast to catch a stretch reflex. That will actually allow the athlete, to, in, in the case of a 1B, to use 15 to 20% more weight than if he doesn't get the stretch reflex. That will allow him to create a greater overload during the eccentric because the weight is going to be heavier. So, so that's an example. But yeah, I, I use the same system, but the methods will vary. The way I apply them, the number of reps will, will vary depending on the athlete's neurological dominance. I love that. I remember I was reading about that type, I believe, when I was going through your neuro your neurotyping course. And I don't know why I've never actually gotten to using it because I was pretty floored when I was reading about this. This makes perfect sense, especially for someone like me, too. And it reminds me a little bit of, I don't know what you think about this or if you've ever seen it, but it was, um, I got the video for those jump souls back in the day. It was when Marv Marinovich was paired up with yeah, Jump yeah. USA and they, you know, they're doing all this stuff with the jump souls, a little plug. And they were on one of the super cap machines and they were like going through it in like one inch ranges of motion, but like dropping, like, like it'd be start at the top and drop an inch, drop an inch, drop an inch, drop an inch, drop an inch. And almost like, as you were talking about the the thing with the muscle spindles and the micro, which is fascinating. I mean, that's crazy. It may, it actually that now that makes sense to me how they talk about like the psoas, like one part of it's lengthening and one part of it's shortening. It's like, uh, man, how advanced are we as human beings? It's crazy. And the thing is, and each of these micro sections within the muscle fiber have their own innervation point. So, so you can actually use more of a certain part of a muscle fiber than other parts. Oh, it's it's amazing. I, I love that. I, I I just think that stuff is so cool. Uh, anyways, but I was thinking about that that rep type, like with the the, the one inch drops. That's almost like the the spasmic version, kind of a, what you were talking about, you know. But I was thinking it's like if I had a one B or like a super elastic person, I'm gonna do a eccentric. Maybe that yeah, that eccentric has some drops in there. Like it's got. I'm gonna flavor the whatever the type, the thing we're using, the, the mode to, to your preference. Even, even an isometric, you do the same thing. Let's say you, you have a, an isometric hold at the 90 degree angle. Well, with a 1B, what you might want to do is you have that hold 
And then what you do is this, from that whole position, you just go super quickly down about one or two inches and rebound up from that position. So you still get the stretch reflex, you still train the stretch reflex, but you're also training an isometric component. Yeah, it's kind of like a like a oscillatory isometric uh, that in the yeah yeah and and that's one thing that I um, back when I was at Cal uh, I had a swimmer who was like the most purest of the pure one B types and he was a sprinter and like when we would just do a lot of traditional heavy lef- lifting his vertical would be jump would be really stagnant like it didn't really seem but mm-hmm. I remember and we were would go through the triphasic type of stuff for my my iteration of it and every time we did a triphasic phase where it was just a standard like a four or five second hold at the bottom he lost uh reactivity he told me like i don't like this like i just this isn't and so we changed it to um i learned this from sheldon dunlap who he was at uc davis a strength coach now he's i think somewhere on the east coast but he had recommended changing it to like an oscillatory yeah kind of like you were saying just like a quick up and down at the bottom and then explode out and we changed it to that. And then the concentric, we changed it to like just speed squats. And he did so well on that. I mean, it was like night and day. Just same, I guess, emphasis, if you will. But it's just like, yeah, making these tweaks. Like, And I did get a lot of that idea. I wouldn't have had that idea if it wasn't for your neurotyping system and course. So that was a really big part of that. It's all about understanding what each person will respond to. And then you can just find or tweak the method that will still allow you to train the muscle contraction type you want, but without injuring progression, because you need to train isometric. But if the way you train it lead to a decrease in performance because you undertrain what you need, or, or for or the exclusion of the stretch reflex decreases force production so much that the exercise is of no value now, well, you, you're wasting your time. But that addition of the the... the, the oscillatory effect or the uh, very quick stretch reflex after the hold or after an isometric, slow eccentric, then that will make that method work for that person. Again, the problem is that you cannot use the same dosage of exercise when you do that. Because if, let's say I'm doing a slow eccentric, and then the last third or last fourth of the range of motion going fast to catch a stretch reflex. That exercise actually becomes more neurologically demanding than if I go slow all the way. Because now I have two modes of contraction, three if I include the concentric, so it increases neurological demands. The more different tasks or the more a task changes during the execution of an exercise, the more demanding it is for your brain. And the harder your brain needs to work, the more adrenaline you produce Mm. because you need adrenaline to speed your brain up. And that also requires more cortisol, more adrenaline, more cortisol means you're more likely to burn or fatigue or desensitize and regulate your beta adrenergic receptors leading to what we call overtraining, which I prefer to call training burnout. So if I combine those contraction types into one set, I might need to decrease the volume by doing, let's say, one less set per exercise or by not pushing as hard, meaning that if I do just regular slow eccentric all the way down, the athlete might push to an RP of eight or nine, for example. If I use a slow eccentric, then boom, a stretch reflex, we might push to a seven or eight, for example. Just finding ways of decreasing the the adrenaline production by reducing other factors. As I mentioned in the past, you have six factors that will increase cortisol and adrenaline in training. If you increase one, you need to decrease another to compensate if you don't want to have a higher overall stress level. 
So if I'm increasing neurological demand, I can either decrease volume, I can decrease intensiveness, how hard I'm pushing each step, I can decrease density by adding uh, more rest in the rest period, I can use less demanding exercises, or I can just try to keep the session as cool as possible, or I can take an exercise out of the workout. But you need to reduce that to allow you to use that more demanding type of contraction. Uh, with that in mind, how many sets, I mean, it's probably quite a range, but like for, a, for an intermediate advanced athlete, how many sets of these, um, of the different phase protocols are you usually looking at? And how many would you do if it's like, if it's like a one B and it's like, okay, we're going to do this type of eccentric and a drop. Are you looking at only two to three sets of that or three sets? Three sets. Yeah. Normally, normally we would, we actually will include three warm up sets. And, and that's something that coaches need to do. Okay. They need to program the warm up sequence into the program. That's super important. Because I've seen athletes burn out by doing too many warm-up sets. I've seen athletes get bad performance or get injured by not doing enough warm-up sets or not using a progression in the load of the warm-up sets. The warm-up warm up is not about, about warming up. First of all, warm-up is a really bad term. I use it because that's what everybody says. It's really preparation sets. So you're preparing your body for your work set. So you need to gradually increase the weight. You need to increase the focus on technique and speed so that you will be prepared for your, your work sets. So me, I, when, I, when I design a program for an athlete, the workout grid always has the warm-up or preparation set included. So let's say I have a grid. There are nine columns. So the, the most work set an athlete can have normally is six. Because normally I'm going to have them do one to three warm-up sets, depending on the, sometimes we go up to four, depending on the strength level of the athlete. And the first two, three, or four column will be a different color. It's gray. That's a warm-up set. And then we're going to have the, the work set. And then I will always include the RPE for every single set, including the warm-up. So the first warm-up will be a five. Second warm-up will be a six. Third warm-up will be a seven RPE. Then we start the work set. So actually, the, first, the, the last warm-up set can be a 7 RPE or, or close to it. And the first work set could also be a 7, but with a different load. But oftentimes, what I do is my last preparation set, I want it to be either at the weight of my first work set or even slightly higher, but for very low reps. So for example, if my work set is going to be 5 reps at 200 pounds, for example, my last warm-up could be 200 pounds for two reps. That would be an RPE of six or seven. If I could I even go to 210 for one rep or two reps, still an RPE of seven. But I'm gonna get I'm preparing my brain to handle and dominate 200 pounds by going slightly heavier. So that's why I mean, you can achieve so much different things with a proper warm-up strategy. And the proper warm-up strategy will be different from one person to the other. Some people, they will respond very well, really well to doing a single with more weight than your first work set. Some people will not do well with that. Some people will need four warm-up sets with more reps just to feel comfortable with the movement. So that's why when you know the athlete, you need to include the warm-up strategy into the program. I like that with the RPE base, like you could do a heavier yeah. set of two before a set of five. Like I, 
I would use uh, I was use one by one by twenty a lot with a lot of my beginning uh, beginner level and intermediate athletes. And I my water polo team, I would have a you, okay, you're going to do a warm set of five with basically the same weight you're going to do for your twenty. So you do a warm set of five and then do a set of twenty. And I I I, I didn't do a I didn't use the RPE system. I didn't and I would tell them that. But then I would see guys like maxing out on the five and then doing like kind of a whatever set of I moved to the RP system about a year and a half ago uh, because what I found my greatest skill set was as a coach was actually I'm a much better coach in the trenches than I'm a programmer because I I'm, I'm, was great at selecting the proper weight for an athlete just by looking at how they were lifting. That was my skill set. Adapting the workout on the fly based on what I was seeing. But when I program for distance athlete, I can't do that. So I can't, percentages didn't do it because, well, depending on the day, the fluctuation of energy, how many meals you have, what time you're training, how much sleep you get, 80% could feel like 100% one day and it could be 70% of the other day. So it doesn't, that doesn't work. The RPE uh, is the best way, in my opinion, to program for distance athlete. However, the downside to that is that they need to know what an age feels like so that's the limitation i remember i had, a, I had an athlete who like you know these these overworker these overachievers and it will just work harder than everybody else he would send me a video and the program would call for an rp of eight on the last set of squat and i i swear to god the concentric probably lasted five seconds uh, and not because it was in the plan that's because the athlete was just struggling and grinding it up they do. That's not an eight. Oh, yeah, I had at least one more, two more reps in you. No, dude, that's like a 9.95. Okay. So you, athletes need to be clear about what an eight, a nine, a 10, a seven is. Okay. So, so that's a limitation of the system because it remains your own perception of the difficulty of the exercise. And again, the limitation of percent based training is that depending on your fatigue level, 90% might be 80% one day, might be 100% one day. So it fluctuates. So that's, not, that's not precise. But RPE can be the same thing. If you're feeling like crap today, an 8 might actually feel like a 10 just because you, you, you're feeling like crap. It feels like a 10. You, you stop, but you actually had two more reps in you, for example. So it's, it's not perfect. It's not perfect. But I think that RPE combined with proper athlete education is the best way to uh, adapt the yeah. training load. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And even I think I, I could have communicated my percentages better in my situation where I have my athletes who are who are going a little heavy with the fives. But I, I actually would write the percentages out, but not so much. A lot of times I wouldn't link one or at maxes to them, when I, even though I could. I just was like, hey, it says 80%. This is what this means. And I'd re- I found I'd much rather do that for the most part than have a hard number to, to hit. I mean, it's nice to tell people, hey, you should be in this ballpark, but... I just eventually felt like that was a little better um, yeah. way to go about things. As, as long as you do have a system that, and that the athlete understand what the system means. I think the worst is really having a certain number to shoot for uh, and that you program that number weeks in advance. That's completely stupid. doesn't make sense to me. There's no way you can actually predict how fast the, the, the brain and body will adapt. I mean, there's no body on earth that can do that sometimes it works simply because you well even a broken clock would be right 
twice a day, right? But you can do more harm than good. The thing is that, for example, if in my mind, most athletes during their work said they should not go above an RP of eight, okay, on a big compound lift, okay? Uh, more than that will probably lead to more fatigue. Like once in a while, if they're testing, it might be okay. But normally I like to stick with seven or eight for the, for the work set. So let's say if I, if I use a percentage, and in my mind, for example, five reps at 80% will be on paper, that's supposed to be an eight on RPE scale. But if the load I give them today is actually a nine, they will be able to do the set. They are still capable of doing, let's say, five reps with 200 pounds. But that is maybe 10 to 20 pounds too heavy for the progression curve. And that might actually limit for just because you can't do the set doesn't mean the, the, the weight selection was adequate. Now, I'll often go with the example that when I was at my strongest, I would bench press 445. I would squat uh, 600, front squat 445. In a six-year period, I never missed a lift. And when I say I never missed a lift, it meaning that no lift actually came close to being missed. Every single rep I ever did was solid and smooth. I never came anywhere close to maybe thinking that there would be a slight possibility that probably, maybe, I would have a chance not to finish that rep. And Vasily Alexeyev said it best. Alexeyev, the great, of course, Russian Olympic weightlifter, he said that in training, great athletes should never train on the nerve. That means pushing those reps that are grinded up and then you're not, you're not sure if you're going to make them. I, I remember when I was younger, I would look at Alexeyev's training journal, training program, including all the weights he did prior to, I think it was the 76 Olympics. And I was extremely disappointed by the weights he was using. Because in the whole program, the whole progression, periodization, leading to the Olympics, where he clean and jerked 255 kilos, he never went over 225 on the clean and jerk, and he never went above 265 on squats. And he clean and jerked 255. So, well, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. In my mind, when I was, that was when I was like 22, 23, I was that overworker that would just grind it out and push it and push it a little bit more and more and more. I wanted, I expected to read that you need to push like a madman in training. And when Alexeyev said, well, you, don't, you should never train on a nerve. Always keep a few reps in reserve. Never miss a lift in training. My world was actually shattered. Shattered. And it's funny because that actually coincided with the end of my weightlifting career. I did the dismal performance at the national championship. It just killed my motivation to train. And I actually started applying Alexeyev's recommendation from that point on. And ironically, that's when I snatched my heaviest weight. In competition, my best ever was 125 kilos. And after switching to the don't never miss rep, don't put pressure on myself, I, I reached 142 kilos. And, and that's when I, when I bench press heavy, that's when I, I spread him. So there's a point to be made about an athlete does not need to grind it out and push like crazy to gain strength. In fact, the side effects of that are likely bad. That doesn't mean you shouldn't try to push heavier weight. You definitely should try to increase the load you're using, but not at the expense of the quality of performance and you dominating that weight. Of course, 
it depends on the person I'm working with. With a 1A, I will allow them to push to a 9 RP, but the sets will be much lower. For a, one, a 2B, then I, I will not get them anywhere close to failure, but the sets will be higher. So same thing with the type 3. So there's some leeway there, but an athlete should always stay within control of the load. Yeah, that is interesting because I, I know that like 1As particularly want they want to go heavy. They want that intensity. But like we talked about on our last show, they also have very high adrenaline. So it's like they can, I guess they could pay a lot for going like too heavy and, and failing, right? So how do you balance that Rager's edge with those 1A athletes? That's why you need to keep the overall load of the workout very low. Again, just go back to the six variables that increase the danger from a burnout perspective, which is the main problem of an athlete, is just producing too much adrenaline. Because too much adrenaline will desensitize the beta adrenergic receptors, decreasing performance and making you feel like shit overall. And there are six variables that can increase cortisol and adrenaline if pushed higher. Volume is one of them. Intensiveness, how hard you're pushing your set is another one. So an RP of 7 is fairly low intensiveness for a work set. 9 or 10 is very high. Uh, then the third one is psychological stress. How much anxiety or how much pre-execution heart rate increase you get from an exercise. You can actually measure it. How much does your heart rate increases leading up to your set or leading up to your workout? I remember when I was doing CrossFit with my wife. I would be in a car driving to the gym and my heart rate would be crazy and I would be sweating because my adrenaline was very high because of the stress, anxiety, psychological stress from the upcoming workout because I had no idea what I was going to be doing, but I knew it would be painful. Okay, That's psychological stress. Then the fourth one is neurological demands. How complex the workout structure is, how many, met- how many methods, how many exercises, uh, do, uh, do you have supersets, stuff like that. The more complex a workout is, the more newer exercise you have, the more complex exercises you have, the more different motors, uh, motor tasks you have, the greater the neurological demands, the more you need adrenaline to keep your brain amped up to be able to do those tasks, the more cortisol you produce. Then other variable is density. The shorter the rest intervals, the more adrenaline is, is, is amped up. And the last one is competitiveness and training. When you absolutely want to beat the exercise or beat your partner, it also increases adrenaline. So if you have a 1A, the competitiveness will be high because they always want to win the workout. Intensiveness will probably be much higher than everybody else. So you need to decrease the other variables. So you decrease volume, you decrease density, so you increase the rest intervals. You decrease neurological demands by using less exercises in a workout and not using lots of exercise variation. Because the more you practice a certain lift, the less demanding demanding it becomes on the nervous system. That's why Olympic weightlifters can snatch, clean, and drink, and squat every single day, sometimes twice a day. It's because for them, they're so technically efficient in the snatch and clean and jerk that these lifts are no more neurologically demanding than the curl for you and me. The better you become in a, a lift, the more natural, automatic it becomes, the less demanding it is on the nervous system. So with a 1A, less exercise variation to decrease uh, that stress. So you, you can actually have an athlete push hard, like 9, 10, if that's what they need to be motivated. But to compensate, you will need to bring all the other variables down. 
Yeah, that that makes good sense. It actually, uh, as you were saying that, I was thinking about a, a pretty popular just track and field sprints program. Uh, I've had the guests on, I believe, twice, maybe once or twice. <laughs> I have to I have to figure out. But Tony Holler he has a system called Feed the Cats. It's a sprint training program, and it's very much to me based on training. And as most track sprinters are one A one B, but a lot of time they aren't trained that way. But it's very it's it's not a lot of variety, like forty yard dash, yeah. ten meter fly a couple speed endurance workouts uh, and there's not a lot of, but I, I, I wonder if that's part of it is because if, and they also run alone for a lot of them, like don't race each other. And so I, I'm thinking as you're talking about, it's like, these are ways to mitigate too much adrenaline in, but a sprint training context, not, not just weightlifting, but just within that. Oftentimes uh, either coaches or athletes will instinctively gravitate toward trade uh, successful athletes meaning will, will actually have gravitated to strategies allowing them to be able to train with what motivates them for example when i was uh, training at a national center our coach Pierre Roy, had a special method of programming he never programmed sets he would program the number of reps per set he would program the number of exercises the exercises themselves and uh, uh, the, the and the intensity range, so how much weight you should be using. But he wouldn't use set, he would use duration. So you do, let's say, for example, you power snatch, it's sets of three reps with roughly 80% for 20 minutes. Me, I would do in 20 minutes, 15 sets. My training partner, who was national champion, who snatched 170, who clean and jerk 210 kilos, way better than I was. That would actually frustrate me because in that same 20 minutes period, he would do three work sets. Subconsciously, he was a 1A, of course. Subconsciously, he would actually gravitate toward very long rest periods to avoid burning out. I don't know if it was instinctive, if it's something that his coach taught him, but that actually worked for him. It's funny because years later, I actually trained him. He actually hired me just to do a prehab program because he had shoulders injury. Dude, even between sets of rotator cuff exercises, you would still rest like six minutes. <laughs> just talking all the, all the way, all the way through the rest period. It's quite funny. I, I do, yeah, I do, do think you, about that. Oh, sorry, to, uh, sorry. Now you look at uh, Ben Johnson, the way Ben Johnson trained. Uh, he, he did three exercises, lifting exercises for his whole career, basically. Parallel squat, bench press, reverse leg press. That's all he did. And even his sprint program was extremely limited as far as exercise variation is concerned. Yeah, that's one of those uh, yeah general philosophies that just fits into so many things. And yeah, yeah I, I, I think that's... If I have more advice to give is understand the six variables that can increase adrenaline and can thus lead to burning out, overtraining, and underperforming. And if you need to push one of those variables, just bring another down. Understand which of these six variables will give the biggest return on the investment for a specific athlete, and then find a way to be able to push that one variable much higher so that he will get what he wants from training, but then you decrease other variables so that he is able to push that one variable higher. Yeah, it's yeah, and it, it, it really helps 
I, me to hear this stuff too, because I'm the type of person that I like a fair amount of exercises in my program. I like varying them a lot and versus, but if I'm going to train a one, a type athlete who, if I put all that in, it's just going to be too much. It's going to be an adrenaline bath, you know, too much coordination, too much, you know, all these, it's just really good to, to know that in context. Uh, I have, I have one question left with this and that's, um, and I, I believe I saw something like this in reading. Um, it was um, it, your advanced methods and strength and power book, but could you, in doing the 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 eccentric, the isometric, and the the concentric, um, like putting plyometrics into that? And I'm sure in the intensification phase, could you just talk about how that could um, complement or even possibly replace uh, some of these methods as you're moving forward in the program? Plyometric, as you see plyometrics as either concentric, isometric, or eccentric. <clears throat> For me and my system. When I use the the, 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 the the contraction type programming strictly, like one day eccentric, one day concentric, one day isometric, uh, uh, then plyometric or jumping exercises can fit in any one of these days depending on how I'm doing them. So let's take a, a, a barbell jump squat, for example. Barbell jump squat in the explosion phase could be done on the eccentric day. So we would do very slow eccentric, then exploding up and jumping up. It could be done on the isometric day, going down, pausing, then jumping. Or it could be done on a concentric day, just done regularly. Uh, if I were to do regular jumping exercise on a concentric day, I might do, and that's something I often do with football players, it's a broad jump from a static start. So I will have the athlete, let's say he's a linebacker, he will take his linebacker stance and actually sit down on a bench. So his butt is on the bench or block, but he is in his linebacker position. So there's very little muscle tension. And from that position, without using any like recocking or, or uh, any kind of uh, dip action, he will jump forward as far as possible. Uh, so that would be an example of a concentric action for jumping training. If I want to do eccentric, I'm going to be doing either uh, depth jumping. Depth jumping, like pure plyometric, is an eccentric action. If I want to do uh, more of an isometric dominant plyometric action, I'm going to be doing depth landing, holding the, 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 the catch position for a few seconds. So that's how I program uh, uh, the jump training and explosive work uh, in the contraction type programming system. If... I use, sometimes I will use a program based more on physical capacities. So with athletes who have run through, run through my programming, eccentric, isometric, uh, and concentric for a fairly long period of time, we can say that these are probably acquired skill. There is no deficiency in either types of strength. Then I will switch to a physical capacity programming system. So for example, Monday could be strength. Wednesday could be speed strength. Friday could be strength speed. So the plyometrics will, of course, fit on uh, the Wednesday workout. Do you ever have times where you, you're like, okay, we're going to kind of put the strength of the barbells on the shelf for a little while and just do plyometrics for a few weeks? Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially with athletes who are not involved in a bodyweight dominant sport like sports where there is no physical contact. I mean, uh, or, or, because, or, or sports where strength is not 
the dominant physical capacity. If you're a sprinter, strength is a tool to get you more powerful. And being more powerful is a tool to get you faster. So strength is literally three chain, uh, three steps down the line. So as long as you, you won't lose, if you keep training for power, you won't lose muscle strength for at least six weeks. That doesn't mean your lifts will not go down. Because your lift, your squat, your bench, your deadlift, whatever, will go down within two or three weeks. But that is not because your muscles are weaker. That's because you lost your efficiency in that lift. You lost some intra and intermuscular coordination and your firing rate will be lower on that movement. You might also have some psychological inhibition because you didn't have a heavy barbell on your back for a few weeks. Okay. Just because a lift goes down doesn't mean your muscles are weaker. If you keep training with a high force regimen, in my opinion, metrics, explosive work is a high force regimen because force equals mass times acceleration. As long as you keep training a high force regimen, strength can be maintained for a very long time. Okay, very long time without specific strength work. Again, doesn't mean your lips won't go down. It means that your muscles and your nervous system are the same capacity when it comes to producing force. When do I know that I might start losing strength? Well, if I don't, if I, there's a point where my speed power starts to go down or my muscle mass starts to go down, that might be an indication that I need to gradually reintroduce strength work. But absolutely, I have absolutely nothing against uh, four to six weeks of power-only training. In fact, it is likely more effective for peaking speed and explosiveness than keeping those slow movement in. Yeah, I I, I totally agree. I think it's uh, working in the NCAA. A lot of I think track strength coaches would freak out when their track coaches were like, "Well, we don't want to lift it, you know, for these few weeks leading up to the." And just because it's like, oh, well, what am I going to do now? You know, if you're the, but it's, uh, if it's divided up like that and, you know, and the strength coach is only doing the weights but and things it, like and that. And the funny thing is that if it actually works, it will get them faster. The sprint or the track coaches will assume it's because they are more recovered. And maybe there's part of that. Meaning maybe that if you decrease the amount of strength work, you can, you decrease adrenaline production so you can re sensitize your beta-adrenergic receptors so you respond better to your own adrenaline, making your muscle contract faster and harder. But another point is that the body adapts to what you're asking of it. So the, it's funny, but the higher the proportion of fast work you have, the more you increase fast movement. So if you have an equal amount of slower movement and faster movement, then your speed will not go up as fast. And if you have more slow speed strength movement, speed will go up at a slower pace. That doesn't mean strength work is not important for, for speed. It means it's a foundation. But the fact that you're doing it, you're programming your brain to contract, to recruit those fibers and adding a, fi a firing rate that is lower. But once you reduce that amount of strength work and you increase the amount of high speed work, now your brain will use, will learn to use the force, the strength you have in a fast manner. So just because you're getting slower with strength work doesn't mean it doesn't help. It means that you need to you to learn to use that strength in rapid movement to improve increase your performance. Yeah, it's funny because I was training uh, okay, one of the football players, and it's, it, he was playing in the, in the Canadian Football League, so it's a pro league here, 
and they actually um, canceled the season because of the pandemic. But anyway, we were picking for the season, and the four weeks before the season, he only lifted once a week instead of four. So he only had one strength workout per week and only had bench, power, clean, and squats. That's the only three exercises he had. And he was panicking because his strength didn't go up. But he was getting a lot faster, a lot faster. So, dude, that's because that's the way it's programmed. It's, it's programmed to get you moving faster when the camp starts. But he was panicking. So I'm getting weaker. You're not getting weaker. You're just not you. You went from doing the lift three days a week to once a week with minimal volume and not even maximum weight because I don't want to burn yourself out. Uh, what happened is that when they canceled the season, we started a new training cycle. Within two weeks, he was squatting heavier than he was before the phase without strength. So that's a perfect example of you don't lose strength when you don't train it. If you train for power, just because your lifts going going down doesn't mean you're losing strength. Yeah, that happened to me a lot when I was a track athlete. It would be the indoor season, and I'd be kind of peaking to to be as high, jump as high as I could in February, end of February, early March. And not a lot of lifting going on there. And then I remember within yeah two or three weeks getting back into lifting in March, my lifts would be at an all-time high. Like yeah. it's just I needed to get away and be ex- super explosive and super fast and then just get back into it and bam, it's right back. Like I think people that don't see that sometime and, and are afraid to like get away from that. But it's just such a powerful thing. The thing is that a lot of people, okay, if you're coming from more of a muscle building background, and you stop lifting, you will lose strength because your strength comes from mostly the amount of muscle mass you have. So if you stop lifting and, and let's say you've done a lot of hypertrophy work and, and you've built more muscle than your body would normally want to hold on naturally or normally. Okay. So if you stop doing so the hypertrophy work, even if it's natural, it will basically force your body to carry on more muscle than it really wants to carry for your frame because you're constantly asking it to build more muscle. Now, if you stop lifting for a month or two, that person will actually lose lots of muscle, even even if they're jumping, sprinting, stuff like that, because now they don't have that stimulus that they used to build an amount of muscle that they normally will not want to carry. But an athlete doesn't have that problem. Because an athlete, the training is not there. Yes, there will be some muscle being built. But in reality, the amount of hypertrophy is only a side effect of training for strength. And it will be a lot lower than someone who trains strictly for hypertrophy. So when you stop lifting, you don't have that much muscle to lose because the muscle you carry is essentially the muscle your body wants to carry for your sport. So practicing your sport, you're still contracting those muscles hard. You will maintain much of what you have. You might lose a little bit. Now, I've worked with hockey players. Of course, their season is much longer, but normally they will lose something like three or four pounds, but it's not like they're losing 20 pounds of muscle during the season, right? So, So what happens is an athlete doesn't train doesn't exaggerate hypertrophy. The amount of hypertrophy they're getting is a side effect of training for performance. So if they keep a performance component, a high force component performance, whatever it's jumping, sprinting, stuff like that, they will maintain a good amount of that muscle. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 really interesting. Yeah, and it, I, I definitely, I, I mean, yeah, I was definitely not the hypertrophy type at all. I was just pure elastic fascial, you know, and that, and just 
being explosive definitely helped maintain that. So it's interesting with the different anecdotes with the different, yeah, different muscle type and how, what did you have to, and when you stopped lifting and how do you maintain? So that's a good, that's definitely a really good uh, split there. So, uh, well, hey, Christian, I think that's about all the time, all the questions I had for today, man, but I, it's always awesome talking to you. I, I have so many things to think about now as with every show we do, but I really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, I think you have you have a course related to um, Omni Reps or Multi-Rep Training, yeah, don't you? Yeah, um, the Contraction Training System on my web, website, debarmy.com. So it explains the foundation. I wanted to do, to do an update because the way it's explained it's more for general strength uh, and power performance. It's not necessarily geared at athletic performance. When I give the course in person, I do have a, a sports transfer section where I explain how to program specifically for an athlete. But if you want to learn how to use all the contraction types to increase your strength and power, uh, it's all covered in, in that course. Awesome. Well, thank you, Christian. I, I really appreciate it, man. Good awesome. Man. All right. Thanks for tuning in. That was uh, truly a library of knowledge, and it's always awesome talking to Christian. Uh, I'm going to be marinating on that for quite a while. Lots of concepts, lots of ideas. My, my Evernote got about five new notes as I was going through the editing process there. Uh, if you enjoyed the show and like what we're doing here, we'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to. It helps us get the message of this show out to those who uh, might be interested in this training information. As always, we wanted to give one last shout out and thank you to our sponsor, simplyfaster.com. They have an awesome blog with amazing training information as well as an online store that is the best in class for any training or tech needs that you are going to need. So that's it for this week. Signing out for now. We'll see you next week with another great guest.